0: Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. Hey, Kevin, can you sit up? There we go. Earbuds out. Let's listen to preaching. Not whatever else. Amen. Anyone? All right. All right. For the last several weeks now, we've been in a deep dive into Psalm 145, and we've been really looking in this psalm about some powerful truth and characteristics about God. The Bible Bible says that Psalm 145, it is called a psalm of praise of David. This is, many theologians believe, David's favorite psalm. It's a psalm he would run to when he was heartbroken or he was burdened down or he was distraught or even if he just wanted to praise God because God had blessed him, he would, he would run to this psalm and he would praise God through this psalm because this psalm is chock full of incredible truth about God. And for the last several weeks, we've seen some truth about God that we, we know. I've not given us any new revelation, told us anything fanatic, uh, Something awesome that everybody's like, oh, we've never seen that before. What we're talking about, what David says about God, there are things, they're characteristics, they're attributes of God that we know but we don't respond to like we should. We've, we've seen the truth that God is God, that God is sovereign, God is powerful, God is there. We've seen the, the truth that God is knowable. This almighty, powerful creator God wants us to know him, wants us to... Fellowship with Him. We've seen the truth that God is great, that God God is active in our lives. God is awesome, and we talk about how that that's a word we misuse today. Today we talk about awesome, like oh, He did a great bike trick. That's awesome, but awesome means inspiring reverence and a little bit of fear, where we should fear God in such a way where we were, we respect Him and we reverence him we've seen how God is good and how God is righteous and while we we know these truths when we learn them like oh yeah of course we knew that we don't respond to them the way that David says we should respond in the psalm and that's that's been our focus so, this morning, as we continue to look at the Psalm and continue to look at the characteristics and dive deep into the, the attributes of God, we're going to look at two new verses. And these verses today show us the truth that God has a name. So, look in your Bible in Psalm 145, starting in verse number eight. What's the first two words there? The Lord. Look at verse number nine. What's the first two words? The Lord. Both of these verses begin with the phrase, the Lord. Now, when we read that in English, it looks like a regular generic title for God that is found in a lot of other scriptures. The word Lord in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word Adonai. And it literally means My Lord. It is a a title that is given to someone to display reverence. And so when you see Lord in scriptures, it's usually the word Adonai, and it's displaying reverence to God. But that word could be used to describe someone else. Could it just be used to describe your boss or a king? And it was used often to describe the kings because again it was a term of reverence. But that isn't the word that is used here. In verses 8 and 9, if you look at those verses again, you will notice that the word Lord, the entire thing, is capitalized. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is a different word than Lord, just capital L, lowercase, O R D. Whenever you come to the scripture and you see anywhere in the Old Testament the word Lord written like that, it is not the word Adonai. It is the word Yahweh. It is God's name. It is the Hebrew word Yahweh or, and I went on a, a three-hour rabbit trail figuring this out this week, Because you look in the scriptures, you look in the original Hebrew, it's the word Yehovah. I was curious because I'm reading commentaries, I'm reading things, I've always learned and heard that when you see the word Lord, all caps in the scripture, it's the name of God, it's Yahweh. And so as I'm studying this scripture this week, I'm reading the, the Hebrew and it's not the word Yahweh, it's the word Yehovah. And it bothered me. So I looked at every time, and there's, a, well, not every time, because there's a lot of them. I looked at a lot of times that that word Lord is written in there, and every time I looked at it, it was the word Yehovah. And it bothered me. So I spent a lot of time figuring out how come the word Yahweh is actually the word Yehovah. And what I came to the conclusion was, and we'll get to this, the Hebrews, the old Israelite Jews, felt That the name of God was so holy, was so reverent that they wouldn't say it. They were afraid that they would mispronounce the name of God and thereby violate the third commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. So they wouldn't say it. And then they went even farther, say, you know what? We don't even want to spell it because if you've ever w- looked at Hebrew, it's a very complicated language with little jots and tittles everywhere. And if you, you, you know, hiccup when you're writing his name and got a little dash over it, suddenly you've misspelled the name of God. You violated God's name. And so they, they added some syllables to Yahweh and came up with Jehovah. So when you see the word Lord, all capital in the Bible, it is the name of God. Yahweh or Jehovah. But it was so holy, the Jews wouldn't pronounce it out loud. That's why they used the name Jehovah. So when we read it in the English translation, the translators took the same view of the name of God as the ancient Hebrews, and they, wanted, they didn't want to spell out Jehovah Jehovah or Yahweh, for fear of dishonoring the name of God. But they wanted to make it unique and stand out from every other time that the word Lord was written. So they used the all-caps version of Lord. So whenever you're reading a scripture, and you come across the word Lord in all caps. That is the name of God. And so what this tells us is our God has a name, and his name is Yahweh. Look what John, Popper, John Piper wrote about that. It says God gave Himself the name Yahweh. No man gave Him this name. It is God's chosen personal name. He loves to be known by this name. Yahweh occurs six thousand, which is why I didn't look at all of them. Six thousand eight hundred and twenty-eight times. In the Old Testament. That's more than three times as often as the simple word for God, Elohim, which only occurs 2,600 times. What this fact shows is that God aims to be known not as a generic deity, but as a specific person with a name that carries his unique character and mission. The God of the Bible has a name. His name is Yahweh. And as we continue looking through Psalm 145, we're going to see why David focuses on his name. In the remaining verses of this chapter, he calls the name of God eight times. He does it twice in the verse we're looking at this morning. So let's look at those verses again. Chapter 145, verse 8 says, "...the Lord is gracious and full of compassion." slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are all over, are over all his works. So what David is using, the name of God, and he's giving us more insight into the character of God, into the attributes of God, into how God is. And these verses tell us a lot of truth about who God is. And so we're going to look at them this morning. So we've been asking ourselves a question every week when we look at these verses. What do these verses tell me about God? These two verses tell us so much about God that we're going to be looking at these two verses for the next two weeks. For the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at what these verses tell us about God. Then the third week, we're going to look at how we respond To these truths. But what do these verses tell us about God? First thing they tell us is God is. Say, God is what? Yes. God is. Now, how do we know that God is? Because of his name. Yahweh comes from the Hebrew root word, Hayah. And I know it's going to get funnier. And this is a verb of existence. This verb means to be. So what theologians tell us is that the primary meaning of this word reveals the truth about God's existence. It tells us his name and declares to us that God is. In Exodus chapter 3, God meets Moses in the wilderness. We know the story. Moses is born in, into slavery. His mom hides him for three months until she can't hide him anymore. And then she puts him in the, the little crib and puts him down the Nile River. And he is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and taken into Pharaoh's house. He is raised as the adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter. He's got everything he could ever want. He's got money. He's got power. He's got authority. Everything's going his way. But he learns that he is not an Egyptian, that he is a Hebrew. And God lays on his heart that he is to help the Hebrews uh, out of slavery. And so at 40 years old, he tries to take matters in his own hands. He goes out. He kills an Egyptian guard. He discovers that it's found out he's in trouble. So he runs to the backside of the wilderness, and he spends 40 years as a goat herder. He gets married over there. He he's, his, his starts to have a family, and so everything's going well. And one day he's out herding his goats, and he he looks up and he sees a bush that is burning. Now, this was not unusual in the desert because of the, the dry heat. And, you know, if anybody ever uh, farmed, you worked on a farm with a lot of hay, you know, hay, if you stack it together and kind of peck it, it will just catch on fire. It just, it produces so much heat, it just burst into flames. I remember one year I was uh, working uh, our farm up the road, always baled hay and always collected hay. And that was before they had the big round barrel bales. No one has to pick up. It was when it was the square bales and they'd hire teenagers or kids to come out and pick those bales up. And look, if you've never spent a day baling hay, you don't know what hard work is. It is exhausting. It is hot. It is dirty. I remember the first time I did it, my neighbors used to do it all the time, and I was going to help, and like, okay, great, you can help. And I said, hey, what should I wear? And they were jerks. They said, wear shorts and a tank top. (laughs) That was a terrible idea. I got home and took a shower and I felt like just little pins all over them. So then you know, all right, when you're bailing hay, you got to wear long sleeves and gloves and, and jeans, but it's the summer and it's hot. And sometimes you'll be picking up a bale of hay and they got a snake stuck in there or half a rabbit sticking out. Yeah. Not a fun job. But one year we, we bailed this hay, we packed it up in the barn, we went home. That night, the hay just caught on fire. Burned the whole barn down. Because hay does that. Say, Why? Because he's stupid. <laughs> but in the desert, bushes would catch on fire because it was so dry and so, so arid and hot that they could just burst into flames. And so seeing a bush on fire wasn't an abnormal thing. But Moses sees this bush and it's on burning, but the fire's not going out. The bush isn't being destroyed, so he gets curious. So he goes to see what's going on, and as he approaches the bush, God speaks to him. It says, Moses, take off your shoes. The place you are at is on holy ground. So Moses takes off his shoes and he, he meets God for the first time. And God is telling Moses his plan to send Moses back to Egypt, the place he ran from, to go to Pharaoh, who is now the new Pharaoh, which is his, like, stepbrother, cousin, not really sure what the relationship was. But he's to go to the new Pharaoh and tell him, hey, God told me to send, to send me, God sent me here to tell you, let my people go. And then he said, I want you to go to the Israelites and say, hey, God sent me here to lead you out, let's go. Now Moses comes up with a lot of excuses why he can't do it. Pharaoh's going to be mad. He's got to stutter. He doesn't know anybody. And finally he, he gives up with all his excuses and he asks, he goes, okay, God, I'll do this, but if I go and I tell the Israelites that God sent me here, to lead them out of slavery, that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham sent me here, they're going to want some proof. And they're going to ask me what your name is, and I don't know your name. So what am I supposed to tell them when they say, who sent you? Look what he says in verse 14, what God says. God said it to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. The the word I am there is the Hebrew word hayah. In fact, the phrase I am that I am literally in the Hebrew is hayah, hayah. So Moses, when they said, who sent you? Hayah, hayah. And ever since I learned that, I just pictured Moses with a cowboy hat and a lasso. Don't know why. Why? But who's in you? Hayah, hiya." Like, oh, well, he is a goat herder. And so I guess it comes naturally. But the, the word is the it, it is the word I am, Hayah. And that's what Moses said. So this word, I am, it describes the eternal existence of God. There has never been a time in history where God was not. God has always been. When we tell stories, we always start at the beginning, once upon a time. Or, you know, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. That's how good stories start. All right? A galaxy far, far away, there are some Jedi. But we always start at the beginning. And we end at the end, happily ever after. Once upon a time, happily ever after. You tell the story about how you met your wife, once upon a time, happily ever after. We have a beginning, we have an end. The story of God has no beginning. It has no ending. God just is. He always has been and he always will be. God is. You can go back in foreign history... As you want to. You can go back 2,600 years to the year 600 BC and you'll find a boy named Daniel. Daniel is living in captivity and he is taking a stand against the king and he is standing on the authority of the word of God and because of that, he faces persecution. And Daniel, because he stood for God, he's thrown in a den of hungry lions by King Darius. And when that happens, it's usually the end of someone. Because I don't know if you know this, but hungry lions eat people. And he's thrown in a den of hungry lions and he's fine. Because while he was in that den of lions, God was with him. Because God is. Go further than that. Go back 3,000 years and you'll find a shepherd boy named Daniel. Here's a little scrawny kid named Daniel and he finds himself on the battlefield facing a giant Goliath, a nine foot tall warrior who is trained to kill men. And here you have David. He's trained to play the harp real good and take care of sheep. But he was victorious because he had a sling and a stone. But more than that, he had God. Because God was with him because God is. God showed up and gloriously delivered the nation of Israel because he is The I am. God just is. Go back further than David. You're going to find Moses. As he's leading Israel out and he gets to the Red Sea, they come up to a point where they're they're trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army barreling down on them. And God shows up and parts the Red Sea. And Israel is able to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then they turn around and God closes up and destroys the Egyptian army. Because God is, God always shows up. I've heard some people say, well, it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. The Reed Sea only gets a couple of feet deep. That's how they were able to walk through. So they didn't walk through on dry ground. They kind of waded through. one." Well, fine. They walked through the Reed Sea and two foot of water, and God drowned the Egyptian army and two foot of water. What's the greater miracle? Doesn't matter. God is and God always shows up. The point is, a miracle happened because God was there, because God is always there, because God is. Go back to the creation of man and woman. God breathed life into them. Go back further. In the beginning, God. When it all started, God already was there. Because God is. Charles Ross says this, he goes, the attribute of eternity means that God exists endlessly. His existence extends endlessly backward and endlessly forward. And that is hard for us to wrap our brains around because we're finite beings. We have a a limited time on earth. Now, Once we have eternity after earth, to spend either with God in heaven or separated from... So we have eternity forever, but we we can't wrap our brains around... He's just... He's always been. Because to us, there has to be a beginning. So people say, well, who created God? Nobody. God just... God just is. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega... The beginning and the end, saith the Lord, here's what I want you to focus on. Which is, and which was, and which is to come. Now, that's important because we describe ourselves in relation to time. We do it in order. Past, present, future. I was, I am, I will be. But that's not how God described himself. He, just, he said, first of all, which is. So he says, I was, which is. He started in the present, or I am. He says, I am, which is. Then he says, which was. And then he says, so he starts in the present. Then he goes, I am, I was, and I will be. So why is that significant? He is, but he was, and he's going to come. That tells us that God is exists outside the parameters of time. God spoke time into existence. He is, but he is, and he he is also the one that was. The one that created time at a point in time, took on humanity, and stepped into the time he created. He was. He created history But he entered history, but he's not just is and was, he is to come. He is coming again to bring all of history as we know it to an end. What that means for us is that God is never surprised. Why? Because he is eternally present. God never takes a day off. God never sleeps. God never gets distracted. You never heard a preacher say, has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? Nothing's ever happened and God said, "Uh uh-oh, shouldn't have been playing that video game. Messed up that. God is. He exists all at once in eternity. God, what that means is that while you may feel alone in your struggle... You may feel like no one else knows what you're going through. God is with you. God sees it. He has seen it all. He has brought people through it all and carried them out on the other side victorious through it all. God is. That means God sees tomorrow just as clearly as He sees today. Just as clearly as He sees yesterday. God is. The second thing we notice Not only God is, but God is unchanging. God is unchanging. I don't think y'all know how good that is, because if you did, you'd be shouting. God doesn't change. No matter what, God doesn't change. The word Yahweh speaks to the unchanging nature of God. Yahweh can literally be translated, He who is? That's why when he introduced himself to Moses, he says, "I am who I am. What you see is what you get. God is not evolving. God is not maturing. God is not learning or changing in any way. God never changes. Look at Malachi chapter three. He says, "For I am the what word? Is it all caps?" It's not a typo, that's Yahweh. He says, I am Yahweh. I change not. God is unchanging. David says in Psalms 102, he goes, Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same. And thy years shall have no end. All of creation will change. It already does. We see it through the seasons. We have spring. We have summer. We have winter, which never ends. And then fall. So we have all these We can see the world changing throughout the seasons. We can see the world. I mean, you go back. I grew up in Rustburg. And I remember when I was a kid, we had one stoplight, and it was a blinking light. That was it. One blinking stoplight. That was all there was. You go there now, they have a Hardee's. They have a food line. They got a Chinese place. They got three or four stoplights going on. It has changed. All of creation changes, but God never changes. God will always be the same. Another American says this. He goes, what we are dealing with here is the dependability of God. He will be the same tomorrow as he is today. He will act as, his, as he promised. That means that God is always God. God is always there for you. God is always strong enough for you. If you came here this morning in need of grace, you came here this morning way down, then he is as gracious today as he's ever been. You need provision? You have a need, maybe you have a physical need or a spiritual need, a financial need, an emotional need. You can know that God is always God. He is as much a provider today as he's ever been and ever will be because he is always God. He is unchanging. If God can meet the needs of Abraham and Moses and the widow woman woman who's gathering sticks and David, if he can their needs, encourage them, and strengthen them, and provide for them, and bless them, then God will do it for us too, because God never changes. Throughout scripture, God is fed. God is healed. God is resurrected. You need a resurrection, maybe a spiritual resurrection, an emotional... You need to write God can resurrect today. God has provided. God has opened eyes. God has opened wombs. He has done this throughout history, and He still can today because God doesn't change. He's as much a provider today as he ever has been, as much brighter today, as he ever will be. And we know that because God is always God, and he doesn't change, and we know that because he told us his name, Yahweh, I am. If you need God's forgiveness, if you need God's protection, if you need God's power, his strength, his wisdom, his guidance, then God can meet your needs because God never changes. He has never, never will change and never has because God is God. Maybe you came in this morning and you need to be saved. You came in separated from God because of your sin. You've never received The free gift of salvation. You've never put your faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for complete and total payment of your sins. You don't know what it's like to be a child of God and part of his family. You came here lost and in need of salvation. The good news is that God is as much a saving God today as he ever has been and he ever will be. And I know that because he is. He is always God. But there's something else that these verses tell us about God. God is gracious. Look at verse number 8 again. The Lord is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. Aren't you glad that God's gracious today? Aren't you glad that because he's God and he never changes... And he always is. That you will never catch him on a bad day. You're never going to have a day where God is not as gracious as He is every other day of, of eternity. Where God's God's well, I, I would I usually help you. But I got on the wrong side of the bed. I didn't have coffee this morning. My wife was nagging at me. My mother-in-law showed up. I can't help you today. God is always gracious. Gracious comes from the Hebrew word meaning likely to act. Or bestow favors of blessing. This Hebrew word is not used to describe anyone else in the Old Testament except God. God is the only one in the Old Testament described as gracious. Nobody else has this attribute. God defines graciousness. The first time it's used, it's used by God. ...to describe himself. Again, in Exodus 3, God introduces himself to Moses... And he tells Moses he's, going to tell Moses, he's going to use him to free Israel from, uh, from freedom. And then from Exodus 4 to Exodus 19, we read about Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh. That's where the, the plagues come in, the blood, the frogs, the lice, all that stuff. Finally, the Passover uh, plague where Moses is finally set free by Pharaoh, and he lets him go, but then he chases him and meets him down at the Red Sea, and they pass over the Red Sea on dry ground. The, the water comes over and destroys Pharaoh and the army. And then Israel marches... To Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he spends 12 chapters. It's 40 days, but 12 chapters are dedicated to Moses' time on Mount Sinai talking to God. From Exodus 19, Exodus 31, it is God speaking to Moses and giving him the law of God, the revelation of God's righteousness and the holiness of God. Look at what it says in verse 18 of chapter 31. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of, st- of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. Think about that for a minute. Yahweh, God, gave Moses two tables of stone that God wrote with God's finger. God carved out with his finger the Ten Commandments on these tables of stone and gave it to, Mo- to Moses. And that's what's happening during these 12, verse, 12 chapters. But while this is going on on top of the mountain, Israel's on bottom of the mountain, And they're not doing so well. They get sick of waiting for God. They get sick of waiting for Moses. So they go to Aaron and say, Aaron, make us a God to worship. And we'll say that God brought us out of Egypt. Which, it, it amazes me. They saw God with the 12 plagues. They saw God through the Passover miracle. They saw God provide water for them after they crossed the Red Sea. They saw God part the Red Sea. They saw God destroy the Egyptian army. They see on top of Mount Sinai this incredible storm of God's glory going. And they say, make us a God, and we'll say that one did it. And Aaron, ever the great associate pastor, (laughs) says, sure, we'll do that. So he collects all their gold. Their gold earrings, their gold no rings, their necklaces. He collects all their gold. And Aaron makes a golden calf. Now he says, after the gold in the fire, and this calf jumped out. But he made the golden calf. And they start worshiping this golden calf. And so Moses, he comes down, and Aaron and Israel. They are, are are just worshiping this golden calf, and they've, they've taken all their gold, and they're worshiping this and calling it their God. Now, Moses, he's been on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days and 40 nights, 12 chapters, talking to God, getting these tablets of stone that God wrote with his own fingers, and he sees this pagan, idolatrous event going on, and he gets so mad, he smashes the tables of stone and tells God, kill them all! And God had every right to. I mean, later on, we're going to see God open up the earth and swallow a couple hundred into hell because they weren't on the right side of things. So God could have very easily said, had the earth eat three million Jews for a snack. But God didn't do that. He could have opened up the earth, but he didn't. He called Moses back on the mountain. He says, Moses, come back up here. I got to a copy of these stones. We'll redo it. But he calls Moses on the mountain, and here's what he says in 34, chapter 34. And the Lord, Yahweh, all caps, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. This scene demonstrates the grace of God. This tells us that God always gives us more than we deserve, and that's grace. I don't know about you, but I like grace. What we deserved was to be sent straight to hell, but God is gracious, so he gave them a second chance. He wrote new tablets for them, and why would God do that? Because God is gracious. And because he's God, he's always been gracious, and he always will be gracious. And the single greatest demonstration of the grace of God that the world has ever seen is found in Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus in the Greek is pronounced Jesus. That's how you say Jesus in Greek. But Jesus or Jesus. Is a Greek translation of a Hebrew name, Joshua or Yeshua. Joshua literally means God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Joshua's name means God saves. Jesus in the Greek means Yahweh is salvation. God saves. Just like Israel, every one of us has violated God's law. Just like Israel, every one of us should be condemned and doomed to an eternity in hell. But God is gracious and God saves. So God is the only one. God saves and he offers his gift of salvation to anyone and everyone who accepts it. He is so good and so gracious that he took on humanity. He came in the form of a baby, lived a perfect life, fully completed the law of God, was put on trial for crimes he didn't commit, was falsely accused, was beaten, was scourged was mocked and ridiculed, was hung on the cross and bled and shed his blood for our sins. God placed our sins on him. And the full wrath of God for my sins and your sins was poured out on Jesus and he died for us. But he rose again three days later to reconcile us to God the Father. He is so gracious that he didn't give us what we deserved, but he gave us what we needed. He offers us salvation. And because God is gracious, because God is unchanging, because God is. If you've never accepted his gift of grace, today is the day. Today is a day to put your faith and your trust, not in your church membership or your church attendance or your tithes or your good works. None of that does anything for you. That's what the law was. The law showed us we could never be good enough to please God. But if you've never put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection only to save you from your sins, you've never experienced the grace of God, but you can You can come forward this morning. We've got men and women who can show you from the Bible how you can know for sure that you're a child of God. But maybe you're here today and you know you're a child of God. You know that you've experienced His grace. Maybe we can come forward and just thank God for being God. Thank God that God is. Thank God that God is unchanging. And thank God that God is is gracious